Hello, little mistakers. It's Monday, which means you're here for another humor in mistakes, where we encourage everyone to find humor in their mistakes. It's your host, Donovan McNeil, and each week my co-host, Andrew Gleason, and I invite a guest onto the show. We get them to open up about mistakes that they've made throughout their lives. They get a little sad, maybe they cry while they're reminiscing, and Andrew and I laugh at them with the hopes that you, our little mistakers, will learn that mistakes are okay and you should make more of them. If you've been listening to us for a while, please like, subscribe, and review. Even if it's that McNeil needs guidance at home or Andrew was funnier when he drank. If you live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and you enjoy decadent hot dogs, go to the trolley stop on Franklin Street and tell them the Humor in Mistakes podcast sent you, and you'll get a discount. Thumbs up for sponsorship. Today a hot dog stand, tomorrow Disney. Speaking of Disney, our guest for this week looks like he talks to his dishes and candlesticks. Tony Castleberry. Tony is a former journalist who has interviewed a plethora of famous comedians. He has a great head on his shoulders, and what he talks about is his dealings with addiction and realizing he needed help and overcoming that addiction to certain substances. So if you're struggling with addiction, if you need to get out of a dark place in your life, this episode will help with that. Uh, Tony's a good dude. Uh, thank you for jumping on the podcast. Take a listen, little mistakers. What's up, little mistakers? <laughs> and welcome to the Humor in Mistakes podcast with me, Donovan McNeil, Andrew Gleason, and our guest, Tony Castleberry. Yes. Baller name, by the way. Thank you. I know you didn't get to choose it, so you don't get like a lot of credit for it. Right. But uh, baller name. It is a great name. I actually was adopted, so um, I took that name when I was nine years old. Oh. I was Tony Voss, V-O-S-S, when I was born. And then my grandparents officially adopted me when I was nine. And boy, did I upgrade in the name <laughs> game. Holy man, it's so much better. Did you? When did you get adopted? Uh, I mean, like you just told me when you got adopted, but when did you uh, go to their house? Or? Um, well, I they raised me from a baby. Okay. So it was officially adopted. Like I took their name, but I had been living with them since basically since birth. Okay. So. I didn't know if you had like to put on the cute Annie face to get adopted. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pimp myself out. Like, hey, look at me. I'm adorable. No, they were with me from day one. Thank God, because then it could have been a. A terrible Annie situation. Can I legally take a woman's last name? Like, because I like McNeil, but like, if I wanted to change my last name, is like, could I like find a woman with the cool ass last name? Your and- your names are interchangeable throughout your life. You can basically change it as as the way I understand it. You can change it as many times as you want. I thought the last name was non-negotiable, but okay. No, I'm living proof that it isn't. Okay. Heck, I might change it again this week. Any ladies out there, if you got a baller-ass last name, DM me. We might be able to work something out. Like Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill uh, Hill is his middle name. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And there are some comics I know who go by their middle name because somebody else already had, you know, Stephen Wright yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, so they go by whatever their middle name is. So, 
Yeah. There's a Justin McNeil out there. That's my first name. Yeah. It's a goddamn preacher. And he's blowing up. I don't he's like really it. Good, huh? He's really good, He's really good. Had me almost go to church. <laughs> I'm watching you, Justin yeah, McNeil. We're on to you. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. I enjoy both of your acts. I've seen you several times since moving here and big fans of both. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, who is Tony Castleberry? Oh, boy. I'm going to leave. Um, no, I, uh, I'm an older gentleman. I'm 45. Um, only started comedy a year and a half ago. But um, I've loved stand-up for as long as I can remember. And um, I interviewed comedians for years um, before ever thinking that I would start stand-up. Um, did it for three or four, about almost four years for free, just for the love of the game. Um, just basically emailing comedians that I liked, uh, emailing their people, asking if they would, you know, join me for a phone interview or a sit-down interview if they were in Raleigh or, you know, email, however we could do it. And uh, got some pretty good ones the first year, you know. I got Gary Goleman pretty early on. Um I got Jen Kirkman, who I love. I got her early on. Dave Attell was another big one oh, wow. that I got. Nikki Glazer. So I just kept doing it and then um, was able to, to move into a paid gig where I interviewed the headliners who came to Good Nights and some theaters in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And uh, then eventually, I guess I just spent so much time around comedy and eventually got tired of people asking me, why don't you try it? <laughs> And I was like, I, I for the for so many years, I said I don't want to do it. It's just not me. I don't know if it was it, it was partly stage fright, and I'd never done it ever. Like I loved the art form, and I studied it. And through all these interviews, I feel like I had a head start on a lot of comedians who just come into it brand new because I'd been interviewing these masters of the craft. And even through osmosis, you're going to get some knowledge, even if I wasn't actively writing down, okay, you have to write jokes. Okay, you have to do open mics. Like, I wasn't going step by step, but I was gathering information from all these interviews with comedians that I loved. And um, eventually, like I said, about a year and a half ago, or a little over a year and a half, April 2018, I finally went up for the first time. I got two laughs in three minutes and <laughs> thought I was awesome because of that. And I was like, yes, I'm going to keep coming back to this. But um, they, give some, uh, they give some comics a run for their money. <laughs> I don't know. Some people, some people like to, to have their three minutes only have two laughs in it. Oh, I mean, to have that on the first time around? Yeah. Buddy. I was like, oh, my God, that joke I wrote, people laughed at that. It might have only been three people laughing at it, but I heard it. <laughs> and I was like, they laughed at that thing I wrote. And I was like, all right, I think I might be able to keep doing this. I, I don't. I still don't envision it being my full-time career. I don't have any you know, delusions of grandeur about being a comedy star at 45 years old. I don't think about any of that. I just enjoy it. It's therapeutic in a way. I know that's an overused cliche, but it honestly is. It helps me talk about, you know, my grandma's death and my past with addiction troubles and my mental health struggles, the way that a lot of us work those things out on stage. That's really why I do it. I mean, honestly, to get laughs is the main job, but um, it does help work out some things. Um, 
you know, particularly some things that happened recently, some deaths in the family and a pet dying and all those things. That's, it's helped me deal with it, honestly. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I got my start in comedy. I just moved to Raleigh, um, in August and, uh, have been going up as much as possible around here and, and just trying to get better at it, you know, um, booking shows here and there and, doing as many open mics as I can possibly find and as many as I can can many shows as I can get on and um it's been great it really has I've enjoyed it and um I feel like I've gotten quite a bit better in the month that I've been here just by the added repetitions just going up more often getting the practice in uh one thing that you said that I liked is um you you deal with pain through comedy. Yeah. Uh, do you find that sometimes people often look at you weird for that, right? Oh yeah. So like I'm the same way. I'm like, because I'm able to take myself out of my own body and look like how is if how is this terrible situation funny? Yeah. And I take myself out of it and I'm able to write jokes like that. Yeah. But people don't understand that. Like, they often don't. My family certainly doesn't. <laughs> like you know. My grandparents raised me. I was closer to my grandma and loved my grandma more than anybody. Like, she was the person I was closest to. And so when she died in February, um, there were a couple weeks there where it was like, nothing's funny. Nothing's funny. Like, things had been funny most of the time. And then those first couple weeks after. But um, I do remember, and I do a joke about this now, there was a funny thing that happened at the funeral service. And I remember thinking in that moment, that's going to be a joke. (laughs) Honestly, I was in the receiving line greeting people. You know, they were walking up to us and this thing happened. And I thought in that moment, like, I could make a joke out of that. But literally zero people in my family would think that is funny because you just don't joke about stuff like that in my family. And it's weird because... So much of my material is about death. <laughs> Honestly, like I, there was a guy, one of my favorite comics. I, I started comedy in Wilmington, and one of my favorite comics there, I was on shows with him this past weekend, um, opening for Ted Alexandro, and Jack is his name, Jack Nelson, really funny comedian, and um, one of the most honest performers I've ever seen. Like He's so in the moment. I wish I had more of that, but he followed me on stage Friday night, and he the first thing out of his mouth was, give it up for Tony, everybody. That was great. Tony sure does talk a lot about death for a guy who gives off a biology teacher vibe. <laughs> and I was like, man, he nailed it. <laughs> he absolutely nailed it. Like, And I do. I do talk a lot about death. But yeah, those are things that I think people who are comedically inclined whether you perform it or you just love it, or if you just have a good sense of humor, I think we go out of our way to find funny things in the most tragic situations. You know, what was your uh, most funny thing in the tragic situation? Uh, I know mine. Do you? Well, I know one of mine. It was the first time I knew. I was like, I'm probably got a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't, talk about uh sad stuff or trauma or anything like that on stage uh-huh. it's just not uh what i want my act to be right so you're better than me is what you're saying uh but in the moment i do mm-hmm. i've always been that guy uh, yeah who like we could be in the middle of a terrible natural disaster 
and I'll be making jokes. Yeah. I uh, recently did uh, jokes at a at a family funeral, like as part of my eulogy. Wow. And uh, that was fun. It was. Yeah. I didn't know how people were going to take it, but I had the place kind of laughing. There were there were some good punchlines in there, I have to admit. Incredible, man. I laughed. I was like, should I be laughing? <laughs> <laughs> is my friend okay? Because he, he has written a, a stand-up set for a eulogy. That's amazing in a way. Honestly, it is. like it, uh, Yeah, it was... But that's the only way I know how to write, so I couldn't, like, yeah. I felt it. If it was real and too real and sentimental, yeah. it would have came off, like, as uh, inauthentic or something. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, and the speech that I gave at Grandma's funeral, um, first of all, just the voice where you're on the verge of tears the whole time. That's how I read it. Yeah. Like, the whole thing. I could barely keep it together. But I did work one joke in there. And people laughed at it, and it was just like God was smiling on me. Like, it was the best feeling in the world. Because I was like, you know, like I said, it's mostly, you know, this is small town North Carolina. I was born in Winston-Salem, raised just north of there. The church is this tiny place where we're having this funeral service. And I'm like, they're either going to like this or they're really going to hate that I tried to make light of something in this very grim, sad situation. And so when I delivered the line and I waited a beat and I heard some people laughing, it was like, whew, all right, we can keep moving. If they hadn't laughed in that moment or if people had gotten fidgety or whatever, I'd have been like, oh, boy, I can't reverse course here. I have written down what I'm going to say. I can't just ad lib my grandma's down. funeral speech. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to improv that. Like, I guess I could have tried. But, boy, that sounds awful. <laughs> You know what set I've been working on for like three or four years now? Uh, my vows stand up set. How about that? <laughs> yeah, like it. Is, my vows are going to be so fucking hilarious. <laughs> That's great. That's a good idea. That's like, a good idea. I tailor it so it can work with anybody, and then I can like yeah. adjust it accordingly to whoever the girl is. But my all my vows stand up set is going to be fucking That's hilarious. Smart. It's going. To, I saw a video online of a, a guy, it was an Irish guy over in Ireland. What he had done was, I guess he was sick. He was a younger guy, and he knew the time was coming. Mm. So he gave his one of his family members a CD to play at his funeral. And as the casket is going down into the ground, you hear a recording of him going, yeah, I heard about this! <laughs> yes! No, I'm not gone! <laughs> I'm like, fuck! <laughs> I heard about that and it's hilarious. Yeah. Could you imagine going out on like that's? I mean, take. A, I was jealous. Yeah. I when I saw it, I was really jealous. I was like, "That is such a good punchline." Like, Brilliant. I can't beat that. I can't. It's the ultimate punchline because that's the last thing they're ever gonna hear from you. Like, you know, dead fuckers. It's, it's <laughs> stealing all the good ideas. It's right there with having like forty beautiful French women crying over your cat. True. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Depending on my state of mind. I would. It would be tough for me to pick which one of those would be more important, you know. Oh, but uh, mine was. It was. I, I was five, and my mom had already told me like my dad was probably gonna go to jail, right, mm -hmm. for a while. So she comes home and is like, uh, he's been arrested. All blah 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 blah. He's going away, and I was like, well, damn, that's one less person that can ground me. <laughs> <laughs> And my mom did not find it funny. Oh, man. God, that's a good line. 
Hey, that was in the moment? Uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, it's one less person that can grab. I had already been thinking of it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Executed perfectly. Though. It was like, this line is going to pay off soon. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, all the life of a community. One thing that I was writing down as you were talking is that we might steal some of your ideas to get comics for the show. <laughs> okay. Like, just contacting their management. Like, you were sounds like, we might steal Oh, definitely. Yeah. I email, man, honestly, like, when I, I started with local comedians who I had seen featuring for headliners. Yeah. People that I'd met at shows and just said, hey, I'm thinking about starting doing this thing. I'm going to ask you if I'll have a few. There's a structure to it. I have a few lead-in graphs where I provide background on the comedian, um, maybe a funny story that I might have about them. Then the Q&A portion is straight up transcribed. Just as we have it recorded, I type it all out. All, so there's no editing of the answers. Nobody can ever accuse me of taking anything out of context because the questions and the answers are typed just as I ask and as they answer. Um, and so I just, you know, after after getting a little momentum interviewing some comics in Charlotte, a couple in D.C., um, there were a couple Atlanta people that came on when early on. When did you on. start this? This was 2012, 13. Who are the uh, features back there? For There's a guy named Carlos Valencia. He was the first person I ever interviewed. He's a Charlotte area comic. He featured for Doug Stanhope. It rings a bell. Yeah, he's been in the game for a while. Yeah. Um, he, he goes on tour for a while, and then he'll be back in Charlotte. Then tour for a while, then back in Charlotte. Um, I saw him feature for Stanhope, thought he was great. Knew that at that point I wasn't going to get Stan Hope. Still haven't. Still trying. Um, but He was here, wasn't he? I know. I went to see him in Greensboro, too. I love the guy. I think he's brilliant. I've seen him probably four times now. Did you see, um, did you see the improv show? I didn't. I went to Greensboro oh, okay. at the Comedy Zone yeah, I saw, um, the I saw night the before. improv show. Yep. Yeah. He's, uh, he's one of the best, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, I, I figured I could get Carlos. He was totally down with it, so that was the first one. There was another one, um, the Cape Fear Comedy Festival. I'm wearing the shirt now. Um, the 2012 or 13 Cape Fear Comedy Festival, there was a comedian there who had followed me on Twitter randomly. I followed her back. Her name's Jen. She doesn't even do comedy anymore, but I interviewed her. She was great. Um, and then from there, I was like, well, why not try to get people who are a little bit bigger names? And um, I, no joke, sat down and for hours I would do this. Just, you know, go to a comedian's website, hit that contact button, and it's going to have the thing where you can email them straight away, which they never answer those emails. But their representation, their if they have a PR person, that person's listed. Management, agent, management group, whatever I could find. Um, I would find the one or two people that seemed most likely to respond to the request. Email them, and I told them straight up, look, this isn't a promotional thing. They're not doing shows in my area. All the things that you shouldn't really say. <laughs> but I was honest with them, and I said, look, this is just because I love comedy, and I think it would be fun to ask them questions technical questions about stand-up personal questions about their lives whatever it might be um, we can get into the fact if they're on tv shows or if they're going on a tour i can help promote all those things but um i'm just doing this for the love of the game just because i wanted to do it and you know responses started trickling in like it wasn't like a flood and i had to make a schedule for you know i've got a month of interviews lined up but 
slowly they started trickling in. And then my reasoning, the way that I think about it, is the comedians saw that I was coming from this pure place. Um, There were no gotcha questions. I didn't want to talk about any kind of controversial stuff that was going on with them. I just wanted to ask them about stand-up and how they got started and how much I liked their comedy and certain jokes or whatever. And um, it started building momentum. And the next thing I knew, I was in weekly contact with these PR people. Whenever they would, whenever their, um, you know, their client would be performing at good nights or wherever else in the area, I would get emails from them saying, hey, Gary's headlining good nights this weekend. You want to do an interview? And so it was neat how for years it was me reaching out and trying my best to make contact and grab interviews. By the time that I was, you know, three or four years into it, it had flipped and their people were contacting me, asking me to do these interviews. So that felt good to uh, to be able to be on that level and have, you know, these names and numbers in my phone now. I can basically, like, Todd Glass, I've emailed or texted him the last three times he's come to North Carolina saying, hey, you got time for an interview. Gary Goleman the same way. Jen Kirkman is the same way. Um, I've interviewed Nikki Glazer a couple times. And, you know, I haven't been doing as many of those because I think I broke the freelance budget at WRAL because <laughs> I was doing it every week. And they only had so much money to give, and they were like, "Well, we're going to have to scale that back to once a month." So, I was like, "I don't, I'm not really. I feel like I'm kind of losing momentum interviewing the headliners." So, what I'm hoping to do, and I was just talking with Will about this before we started recording here, I want to start promoting local, the shows that we all do. Um, What's the? So you had to pay the comics. No, no, no. What's the budget for? Well, the freelance budget is what WRAL pays me to do the interviews. Okay. And Uh, they could not pay me. The comics did it for free? Yeah. We're going to get a fucking Charlotte Hornet. Uh, Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, on the podcast um, book that I'm reading, it's like, it's customary that most people just do podcasts for free. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you treat in. the guests very well. Of course. So I mean, I'm feeling it right now. Yeah. <laughs> this is luxurious. Yeah. You don't have to pay me anything. Yeah. Uh, we might give you a massage afterwards. That like, sounds wonderful. <laughs> Whatever you need. I'm a little tense in the neck shoulder area, so let's get a massage going. Um, but no, it was it was something that started out of pure just love of comedy. And the fact that I got paid anything to do it was incredible to me and I treated it as such I never took that for granted and so I like I said I want to start doing more of a localized version of that interviewing local showrunners and producers of shows and highlighting those um I'll still work in a few headliner interviews here and there just to kind of keep those connections in place um but I think what I want to try to do is steer it into a more um, localized version of it because, you know, selfishly, I'm, fingers crossed, going to be on some of these shows that I'm promoting. Fingers crossed that that goes as well as I'm envisioning it in my head right now. Hey, uh-huh. your first thing could be uh, the Humor and Mistakes podcast. Oh, I mean, we're on it. Yeah. Let's get that on the WRL.com. It's, <laughs> it's happening as we speak, oh, Andrew. Oh, there we go. I'm making mental notes. <laughs> uh, okay, tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? I was born in Winston-Salem. 
raised in a small town about 10 minutes north of there called Germantown. I mean, when I was... Germantown? German. German's right there in the name. <laughs> like, it's... Oh, boy. Where the hell are we right now? And I said that a lot growing up. Um, no, it's just a little podunk, redneck town north of Winston-Salem. Um, you know, I don't... Since Grandma died, I never go back. Okay. I'll be honest with you. I'll go back to Winston-Salem, but as far as the hometown, it's like, eh, nothing really there What's for the me. What's the population in Germany? That's what I was about to say. <laughs> when I was growing up there, I remember when they installed a stop sign not even a light, a stop <laughs> sign in the town. I'm not joking. And so it's grown some since then, but I remember the first time I recognized, you know, they'll have like the sign, Germanton, and then population, whatever. When I was probably eight, nine, I remember it saying like 312. <laughs> Wow. And I think we're up over a thousand now. Oh, congrats. Moving. Y'all been, it only took forty some years. Y'all been procreating. <laughs> it's a it, it honestly is just a, a kind of a little nothing of a town. Winston Salem is where I hung out. I didn't hang out in my hometown. Like it was because there was nothing there. You know. You went to um, high school? There, I went to right? high school at South Stokes, um, which is Stokes County, the southern part of Stokes County, um, closest to Winston-Salem there. Um, it's in a town called Walnut Cove, which I'm sure you've also never heard of. Sounds like a Buffy. <laughs> it does. After school special. Yeah. The Halloweens are crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, South Stokes High School then went to college at Western Carolina University. Um, Woo, go. Go Catamounts. Okay, there we go. Ridiculous mascot. Nobody knows what a catamount is. That was the Wi-Fi password for us up in New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's a lot of catamounts up there. Vermont, I think, their university also has a catamount mascot. But, um, yeah, went to, uh, went to college at Western and remembered, God, this was a monumental comedy moment for me. Carrot Top came to Western. <laughs> okay. My freshman year. This is 1992. Oh, he was balling then. Dude, mm-hmm. he had he was just starting to be Carrot Top. And uh god, I'll never forget my friend Chris, he played football for Western, 6-4 like 260. We nicknamed him Sasquatch or Squatch for short. We could not have been more excited about going to see this Carrot Top show. Like, it was crazy that Carrot Top was coming to Western, right? And we go, and it was great. It was absolutely great. He was so good. Um, Now, granted, that whole prop thing he was doing was kind of new to all of us. We didn't really know... I had never seen that kind of comedy performed. Certainly not live. I might have seen, like, something on TV, but... Um, the fact that he was there was incredible. He did a great show. And Squatch, Chris, he had Carrot Top sign. He had a bald head. He had Carrot Top sign his head. <laughs> um, and we made a big deal about how crazy he is, right? How crazy Squatch is. Well, now people get that, and then they get it tattooed. tattooed yeah. So we were just like, we were pussies compared to kids these days. Is that the, they get like a celebrity oh, signature? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen a bunch of them. Andrew knew immediately. Yeah, that's a thing. 
Is that my generation? Like, whose generation is this? <laughs> is. I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, this. I think it's every generation now. Yeah, and I think it's uh, specific genres of fandom. Yeah, so that'll diehards. Be, yeah, that's like uh, a Stan Lee fan might do that, right? Or like uh, Taylor Swift fans probably have done it. Taylor Swift fans probably. You know, I'm guessing. Um, <coughs> I'd have Taylor Swift. Son- Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Video was running. <laughs> I was going to do. Uh, I, I was going to do WWKD on my knuckles. Yeah. What would Kevin Durant? No, what would Kobe do? <laughs> just because he's such an extremely hard worker, like whenever I feel like like You're, slacking off, yeah. just look at my fist and be like Kobe would keep working. Right? Yeah. Well, I have this K O Y S. It stands for kick off your shoes, and the, the meaning opposite of hard work. Right? <laughs> totally. I am lazy. Um, well, it's I got this tattooed. It was something after my grandma died. I started going to therapy. And my therapist said, kick off your shoes. The idea is you can't be truly grounded if you have your shoes on. So kick off your shoes and stay grounded, right? And I know it's, you know, kind of flowery and whatnot, but it meant something to me in that moment. But I got this tattooed after my third session. So therapy is obviously working. Like, I got permanent body ink. took to that. I mean, and when I showed... When I walked back into the fourth therapy session with that, I noticed that during the therapy session, she kept looking at my wrist like, what, what is, you know? And I was like, all right, do you want me to just tell you what this is? And uh, when I told her, her face went as red as your shirt. She was like, no. oh my God. Like, I think she was flattered, but also a little disturbed. Yeah, a little bit like uh, this guy is. He's crazier than I thought. <laughs> yeah. You gotta watch the phrases I said. I better stop being so just, you know, inspirational. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe I shouldn't say these things that inspire him yeah. so much. Next thing I know, he'll have something tattooed over his eyebrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, nah, it, it was something that I, I probably, I mean, if I had thought about it more, I might have talked myself out of it. But at the time, it was like something that felt right to do in the moment. And whenever I have gotten stressed or gotten worried about stuff, I have looked at this and thought about it and just been like, kick off your shoes. Chill out. It'll be fine. But it is the opposite of WWKD. WWKD. I think we can find a happy medium, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, there's there's some ha- there's some some medium ground in there, you know, I think, uh, somewhere. Make a plan and go on vacation two yes. two weeks out of the year. You have to satisfy both sides of that brain. It can't just be the hardworking side that you satisfy. All Very the time, true. You know. We we'll also think like when we refer to hard work in sports. Sometimes I'm also like, uh, you get paid millions of dollars. I would go to the gym all day That's too. Like, all it, you got to do is, is, is that really that type of work ethic? Like, right. Well, I I think I'm a huge sports fan, and, and I was a sports writer for a newspaper for 17 years, and I was very close to sports, and I still love basketball and, and football, too. Um, but I've thought about that same thing. It's like, yeah, they have to keep themselves in peak physical condition, but they have all the trainers in the world. They have millions of dollars to motivate them. So if they don't do that, I don't really have sympathy for anybody also, that flames it's out. Easy. Every meal is cooked. It's prepared. You got nutritionists out the ass. Totally. You got. I was listening to CJ McCollum's podcast, and he was talking about. Uh, Love him. They had a overnight in um, 
Houston or somewhere and or Milwaukee. And they had the game the next day. Yeah. They're like, Well, we would uh had to leave like really early the next morning, so we just stayed in the previous in Sacramento the night before. Yeah. He's like, uh yeah, as soon as you land, uh it's straight to the gym. Which means there were meals on the plane. Yeah. Good ones. <laughs> Great ones, I'm exactly. sure. You know, like stuff better than we've eaten in months, probably. Or I'll speak for myself. Stuff better than I've eaten in months, oh, most we. likely. It's definitely we. It's definitely we. Ah, <laughs> oh, Koji, Kobe beef. Oh, my God. Uh, it's I mean, after Kobe? No. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not denying that it's hard work to do that. It's incredibly hard, physically and mentally demanding to do that. But, man... The way that they have things set up now, if you have that kind of ability and don't take advantage of it and don't stay in the league, that's on you. Because there are so many things surrounding you trying to help you succeed that all you have to do is put in the work. Look at Vince Carter. Dude, it, prime example. Exactly. Especially in basketball. Like, football, fine. It's it's brutal. It'll it kill you. Yes. It'll kill you. It's shit. But in MMA, but like basketball – Hire a shooting coach, and you can be in the league until you're 40 making millions. It's amazing. And so many guys, and women too in pro sports, have sports psychologists now and therapists on call all the time. I think it's wonderful. I'm all for it. But I don't want to hear anybody bitching about, man, I work so hard. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're a multimillionaire. You should be. Exactly. You've earned it, so just keep doing that. It's working for you, you know? I want that opportunity. Somebody sign up a 45-year-old shooting guard. I'm ready. You are a baller. I'm ready, man. I, I play basketball with you. You're no a doubt. I, I played it my whole life, man. I love it. I mean, honestly, like, I love comedy and basketball. It's like 1 and 1A. Like, they flip back and forth for me um, for the things I love the most. I've been a Hoops fan my whole life. Are you watching this season? You know, I have loved the entire NBA since I've been watching as many games as possible. Um, I like that Oklahoma City team now. I do. That I know that that hurts your heart because you're a Westbrook fan and they let Westbrook go. But that is still a fun team. They're going to be terrible, but they're going to be fun. Dude, Shy is balling out. Shy's so good. I drafted him on my fantasy team. Really? Love that guy. Yeah. I got him in the late rounds. These dumbasses I'm in this league with, they don't know who that guy <laughs> is. I'm going to wax all of their asses. They have no idea. Did you see him matched up with yeah i know yeah i know i I, it was weird it is it's odd it's odd to see russ his hair is fun too already he looks like piccolo right now yeah the (laughs) hair is pretty fun um and it's weird to see him in that uniform now it's odd but god the whole league is just great and i've been saying it for years like anybody my age and it's mostly dudes my age in their 40s who are like Oh, the league's soft. It's not what it used to be. Look at what Jordan and Barkley and Bird and those guys played through. I'm like, are you an insane person? You're basically saying you liked it when people fouled all the time. You liked it when people got clubbed and clotheslined going in for a layup without any repercussions to the person doing the fouling? Get the fuck out of here. The league is so much better now. And anybody who says otherwise is dumb. That's a technical game now. It's my, so much more fun. The only thing is they're going to have to put the three-point line back a little bit. Move it just, back. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's gotten too – people are yep. too good at making threes. I know. But other than that, that's my only complaint. Yeah. additional two feet for Damian Lillard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. How much fun is he to watch? Yeah. That Blazers team is – do you? Why do you hate him? 
Because he's so good. Uh, because he put a dagger through he did Paul that. George's he did chest. That. He did. I just wanted to hear you say it. I knew why. I just wanted to hear you say it. <laughs> oh, it was so cold blooded too. He just oh, was God. like, and then he waved. <laughs> he held the ball for like twelve seconds. <laughs> Have either of you heard his freestyle? He's he's a good oh, yeah. rapper. Pretty too. good. Yeah. I thought. I mean, when I first heard him years ago, I was like, "That's an NBA player doing yeah. that. It's not bad." It's not bad at all, and he even he even freestyles a little bit um, in those ESPN commercials that he's doing now. I'm always shocked when a pro athlete of any sport is articulate. It's crazy, yeah. And when they're that good with wordplay, oh, it's amazing to see. It really is. Um, I think I think players overall are not only better but a lot smarter about their business and about life in general mm-hmm. now. You see so many guys that are hip to you know. LGBTQ, all of those things, like they are mostly supportive of those causes now. And it's awesome to see because there was a time when athletes didn't talk about any of that stuff ever. It was forbidden. You didn't talk about race issues or homophobic issues or women's rights or any of that stuff. How do you feel about Waco, Texas? Uh, just go out and give a hundred. Yes. <laughs> Republicans <laughs> buy sneakers too. That famous Jordan line. Yeah, like yeah. he would never say that. Exactly. Now. I don't think he would. Um, but yeah, I, I love the league. I mean, I'm a. I, I do watch college basketball too, but I'm a pro guy. Give I'm me the NBA too. all day. I, yeah. I want to see the best of the best do Same. it. Same. I don't even like amateur porn. I want pros. You know what I'm saying? I want big names in my porn. Ooh, I actually am the opposite. I love amateur. <laughs> okay. I love amateur porn. I like to see them fumble around. Like, but no, I like more passionate porn. Yeah, and amateur like- often is because I do like the studio. You know, the lights are perfect and the makeup's done somewhat correctly in the pro porn. But the amateur porn does make you feel like you're there. Uh, it does. You know. And uh, I like I like the storyline, like a passionate porn. Like, yeah. I want two people who are really not supposed to be together yeah. to talk about it for a little bit <laughs> and lead up to it. To work up to exactly. something. Exactly. Like, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also neat that you you can watch these amateur porn people find their way to the pros, much like a minor league baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> there was one I watched come up, and I was like, I'm proud of you. Yeah, honey. you made I- it. <laughs> Went up from the double A's to the double D's. Yeah, <laughs> good call. Good call. <laughs> um, so you talked about some of the tragedies in your life. Yeah. Um, how did that affect you when they happened? Like, were well, you pre- were you mentally prepared? That's a good question. Um, with you know, my grandparents raised me. Um, my grandpa died eight years ago, um, and he had been in declining health for quite a while. Um, so that one we were somewhat prepared for. Grandma, she was one of the toughest people. I've, both of them raised in the Depression era, so very tough, um, very disciplined, um, you know, kind of just we don't talk about things that hurt us we just keep it moving that's just how it was and she was the epitome of that she was driving herself to a job when she was 86 she was still going to work three days a week not because she needed the money just because she hated sitting around she wanted to stay active and so she remained that way literally up until about six months before she died 
And that's when physically she started breaking down. Um, you know, she she could no longer get up and it would take her a lot. I won't say she couldn't, but it would take her a lot longer to get up from the chair to go to the kitchen. Whereas used to it was boom, up and gone. She had to really work. And then it eventually got to where she couldn't do those things and she couldn't drive herself. And, um, you know, one of the hardest decisions we've ever made, and I'm still not sure it was the right decision, um, she started falling, as old folks sometimes do. And a couple of times, you know, she fell when she was home by herself and she would just have to lay there until she could get to a phone or until she could push herself up. And so this scared the shit out of everybody in the family. So we did what a lot of Americans do. And we were like, we're going to move you into an assisted living place. And she hated the idea, did not want to go. And, and when she you know, raise concerns about it. I talked to my mom about it too. And I'm like, is this the right thing to do? And she's like, well, can you move home to take care of her full time? And I couldn't at that time. And mom couldn't do that either. So we decided and, and we talked with grandma about it a lot. And we found the best assisted living place in the area. And I think by and large, they took good care of her. But I will say that without a doubt, a part of her died when we moved her in there because she could no longer take care of herself. Like there was a little light in her eyes. that just kind of got turned down a little bit. And I still spent every weekend with her. I would drive back in four hour trip from Wilmington to Winston-Salem and back every weekend to stay with her. I would take her out for meals. Um, we were a team and even though she hated being in the assisted living place, she took to it as well as she, as she could did some exercises, tried to get some movement in her legs back and tried to, you know, get herself back a little bit, but it just never really happened. And um, we eventually got to the point where she hated being in there so much and she raised so much hell um, that she was like, I want to come home. I don't care what it takes. I don't care if we have to hire a nurse to stay with me around the clock. I want to come home. So um, we got her back home and no joke, like a month after we got her back home is when she died. She was, it, it went like that. It just kind of went from a steady decline to off a cliff. She, she couldn't, she couldn't communicate. She couldn't really eat without help. Um, she needed help to use the bathroom, all of those things. But, you know, I was there to, I was there um, to, I was there with her through most of that. And, Therefore, I don't have a lot of regret, but seeing the person that you love the most kind of just wither and die, even though her brain was fully intact, sharp as a tack right up until the end, her body let her down. And I don't know which one I would prefer, but I think I was happy that, you know, she still stayed mentally sharp, even though her body shut down. I think if I had a choice, that's how I would want to go. As opposed to, you know, I see these dementia stories and Alzheimer's and all those things. And it's just, God, I can't imagine somebody looking at you that you've loved your whole life and them not recognizing you. Grandma and I recognized each other right up until the last breath she took. So I take solace in that. Um, but how I felt after that is even though, even though she had been in declining health and even though she was 89 and we were all like, we need to prepare ourselves for it. There's nothing that prepares you for it. 
if it's the person that you love the most and the person who raised you from a baby, um, it hurt like hell. And I remember just, you know, when it was confirmed by the hospice folks in the room that she had died, um, I just fell to my knees and just uncontrollable tears. Like I cried like I haven't cried maybe ever. Um, but she taught me to be tough and resilient. And so I get that shit out of my system pretty quickly. And then it was all business. What do we need to do to make this funeral happen? What do we need to do? I shifted pretty quickly into that. So then what happens when you do that, that's great for the time being. But then after all that stuff is over and you try to resort, try to, you know, resume normal life, boy, you really miss that person then. Um, because you've been in business mode and taking care of things for these couple weeks. But then when it's just you and your thoughts and that person's no longer there, you know, I called her every night for like 10 years. So to not be able to pick up the phone and call her was brutal. Um, you know, I missed that like crazy. Uh, it was, it was really tough. Um, as you probably would imagine it would be when you're that close to someone. But, um, I'm lucky that I was sober for those last three years of her life. Um, I created so much chaos and havoc in her life and everybody's life when I was drinking and using for all those years. So, um, and she even commented to me toward the end. She was like, I'm I'm really glad that you stopped drinking. I feel like we connected in a way these past three years where there was a divide between us for, you know, those years when I was a hopeless drunk. Um, so I'm thankful for that. As hurtful as it was and as much as I still miss her, the memories now are mostly good ones. Um, when I look at photos of her or my mom will text me a photo of me and grandma when I was small, it's like it brings a smile to my face. Whereas those first month, that first month or two after she died, any mention of her, any image of her would just send me into a tailspin of grief. Whereas now when I think about her, it's happy and it's inspirational, and that's why I continue to write and tell jokes about her. Because to me, even though family members would probably disagree, to me that's a way to glorify her memory. And it's, it's a way to, uh, to keep her memory alive, in my opinion. Whereas they would be like, I can't believe you're telling this story <laughs> about this thing you did or this thing Grandma did. To me, it's, it's, it's helpful, and it heals. Damn. So you mentioned uh, your your substance abuse. Yeah. Um, when, like, how were, old were you when you first started? The I abuse? was. My first drink was thirteen years old. That'll I was. Yeah, I was. I was binge drinking every weekend by sixteen. Through college, it was all binge drinking. Germanville's like that. <laughs> was it Germanville? Germanton. Germanton. Yeah. Um, we had to go to Wanna Cove for okay. the alcohol. Okay. There was none in Germanton. We had to make the five-mile trek to Wanna Cove. Um, but luckily for me, I hung out with older kids who could buy alcohol, so I was in. Um, certainly fed the addiction, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I binge drank <clears throat> all through college, and then... As soon as I got my first adult job after college, started drinking daily. <clears throat> like it was daily drinking. And um, when I was 23, 24, got really heavy into cocaine, used it every day for about two years, um, snorting it, smoking it, 
Um, you smoke cocaine? Yeah, I would sprinkle it on top of weed. Okay. I did, and I also smoke crack occasionally. But what I would do is, um, you know, would have weed and uh, would just sprinkle some cocaine on top of it. And it tastes like grapes when you light it, just in case you're wondering. Are you burning the powder? Yes. You didn't know how to freebase? I mean, I did know, but I didn't have that much time. <laughs> I wanted to get it in me immediately. Um <laughs> So, and yeah, I mean, I was living time with out, my... Time, don't good. mean to interrupt, time out, time out. Because I am, um, I'm just, I've just smoked weed and uh-huh. drank. Yeah. And what is actually free basing? Like, what is a free base? It's smokable cocaine. Yeah, much oh. like crack. Crack is stepped on and cut with all sorts of other yeah. shit. Free basing is... It's pure. Yeah, cocaine uh, cooked to kind of like a gel. Yep. And it hardens. And it's, I mean, you take it, you know... I'm. The Richard Pryor story is the one that's most famous. Like, it's kind of dangerous. Like, you can literally set yourself on fire freebasing it. I could have done that, too, the way I was smoking it, because every time I would light it, it you know, it would flare up. Um, Thought my little mistakers needed to know that <laughs> that life lesson. Be careful, gang. <laughs> Be careful if you're out there smoking cocaine. Yeah, not a good idea. But for me, it was... Uh, it was a very solitary thing. I just wanted to use by myself and get as high as I could by myself. And I was living with my dealer. So in addition to all the drugs that I bought from him, I would steal. <laughs> I would straight up steal cocaine from him. Like he had enough to where if he ever noticed there was some missing, he never said anything about it. So, you know, I was buying enough to keep me in a daily habit. And then would also steal enough to where if I couldn't afford any at that time, I had a little reserve. So I was a full-blown drunk drug addict. Um, it was it was pretty dire. Um, it, it got really bad. But um, I moved to Montana <laughs> to get away from it. I figured if you move to Montana, you can't find cocaine in Montana, right? And I didn't. Well, meth. There was plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> there was plenty of that. And I, and I drank. I, I, my drinking continued up until, you know, three and a half years ago. Um, but moving to Montana broke the daily cocaine habit. And I covered college basketball for the newspaper in Bozeman for four years. Lived out west in that isolated, beautiful place. Um and really never, I, I never went back to daily coke use. I dabbled in it here and there. But, um, you know, as great as it was that I quit coke, the drinking just escalated. It just got worse and worse and worse. And until eventually, you know, two DUIs, jailed four times, broke, so many broken relationships um, with family members and women and friends and everybody else that you could imagine. Um, it just escalated to the point where it was going to be death or jail and the death was probably going to come by my own hand. Like I wrote a couple suicide notes. I was ready to check out. I thought, um, but I would, I would wake up the next day, you know, not remembering anything and would see that even the suicide note was just gibberish, just (laughs) drunken gibberish. That I couldn't even make out the words, and I'm like, "You, it's a half-ass suicide note. That's not. You got to write it before you get fucked up. That's the thing, and I thank God I never had the foresight to do that, <laughs> because if it had, if I had been able to read it, I might have actually carried it out, but I couldn't read it, and so, 
Um, I'll never forget the last day I had alcohol. I, I drank. I, I was always a beer guy. Always drank beer. Um, <clears throat> I would drink liquor too, but my my drink of choice was beer. I drank 20 beers. Um, I'm talking the high gravity, high alcohol content, the fancy craft beers, the ones that have a lot of alcohol in them. Um, I drank 20 of those and I did not feel a thing. I didn't feel a buzz at all. I felt just as sober as we're sitting here right now. And it was weird. And I remember thinking, this isn't doing anything for you anymore. Why do you continue to spend all this money and time on this thing that you're really not getting anything out of? You're not even getting a buzz off drinking 20 beers. Now, I don't know why that one day it happened, because there have been other days where I'd drink eight beers and I would be wasted. But this day, for whatever reason, it didn't hit me at all. I think my tolerance had gotten to a point where, you know, I was drinking a, I was drinking a 12-pack a day, pretty much, and blacking out four or five times a week. Um, but this night, nothing happened, and I, I took a photo of all those bottles and cans because I would just drink them and just sit them on the bar. I never put them away until the following morning. And you know, you cleaned all, up. Yeah, I did sometimes, <laughs> rarely. Once we a, had an apartment. I was kind of, but it would be you know a couple weeks before beer bottles were picked up. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I had waited two weeks, there would be nowhere to walk in the place because yeah. I was drinking 12 a night. You know what I mean? And heaven forbid I had a drunk friend over and they drank too. It'd be nowhere to go. Um, but I remember taking a photo of all those bottles and cans. I don't know why. I guess to remind myself that, you know, that was going to be it because I had told myself a million times before that I had to quit. But for whatever reason, this night, um, it stuck. I, I looked myself in the eye and I said, you have to quit. You have to quit or you're going to die. And um, I haven't had a drink since that night. June 3rd, quit 2000. turkey? Yep, I did. Dangerous. Oh, so dangerous. I was so just... I was in a weird headspace those first couple weeks after because, you know, your brain is used to having the alcohol or drugs provide the serotonin. Did you get real distant with everything? Totally. Like, and what? I didn't feel like anything was real. Yeah. It, every I felt detached. No, it was very weird. That's a that's exactly what happened with me. I was like, God, I, I don't know what's gonna happen with my body right now because there were some changes, you know, and but I will say that for all the fear I had of having seizures and all those things that I'd heard about for people who quit cold turkey, I started feeling so much better after the first two days were like physically draining. It was painful. Like I wanted it really bad. I wanted to drink and I wanted to you know, smoke and whatever. But after like three days, man, I started feeling so much better. Like it happened that quickly and there were no seizures. There was none of that. I just, I started managing it and, you know, I substituted ice cream for alcohol for like a year and gained a lot of weight. <laughs> um, still trying to shed some of that, but you know, you look good. I mean, I try. I'm 45. I just kind of, you know, maintain it as best I can. And well, Dad bought us in just in case. Like, oh yeah, I'm going for it. Okay, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm happy I quit. I mean, I still am tempted uh, from time to time, but the longer I go without it, 
the smaller the temptation gets. I don't really even give it much of a thought anymore because I know how shitty life would be if I went back to doing that. I would have never done comedy if I was still drinking. No way. And I'm not saying I'm God's gift to comedy, but it certainly feels good to me to be able to do it, and I would have never taken that step if I was drinking. How did you, uh, were you tempted to fall back after your grandmother's death? Absolutely. I mean, I passed a lot of Winston-Salem bars. As a matter of fact, I pulled into a couple of the old Winston-Salem bars that I would go to and just sat in the parking lot. And I know there are any number of therapists who would say, oh my God, why were you doing that? Why are you playing with fire like that? But for me, it was a willpower thing. I wanted to see if I could go to that place and still abstain. And I was able to. But yeah, man, I mean, you're very, that's a very astute point. Um, Immediately after she died is when I felt the temptation the most, like the day of. You know, the one day at a time thing is so cliche and it's used a lot, but honest to God, it works. It works. I don't think about long term. I think about staying clean today and how beneficial, how much better life is that I'm not drunk and sick all the time and broke, quite frankly. It's a big one, too. So you... It was you drank and used pretty heavily for a couple of years. I drank heavily for twenty. Now this is a podcast about mistakes. Yeah, can we get a couple crazy sure. mistakes from sure. your wild days? Oh my god! I want the fire. Okay, flames. Well, um, what's the wildest shit you've ever done? God, um, the the first DUI I got was probably like the worst um i drank i don't know how much i drank i must have had at least 10 or 12 beers and uh had been doing coke most of that night me and my friend brian are leaving this club where we had seen a band within half a mile i get pulled over state trooper not good no i knew right away i'm like well i'm fucked and so he pulls me over. I fail all the sobriety tests. I get cuffed. How hard are they? They're like, tough when you're drunk. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> they are very hard. Well, I've heard rumors that people can't pass them sober. That, if, if you're, you got to be super uncoordinated. Okay. To not, I mean, if you have any coordination at all, you should be able to pass them when you're sober. But when you're as wasted as I was, you got no chance. And I knew that. So... Did you um, attempt your oh, yeah. best try? They, okay. They make, I mean, he, he was like, I was like, I, I told him, this is how, <laughs> this is how wasted I was. I told him before he even made me do anything. I'm like, I'm going to fail all this. This ain't going to work out. I'm like, I can't do it. So that was his amusement. <laughs> he, that was his amusement. He was getting off on the fact that I couldn't pass any of these. They didn't need to do that. Not at all. Like I admitted, I was almost like saying here, man, I know I'm guilty. So, um, cuffed me. Put me in the drunk tank, stayed in overnight, didn't sleep a wink. The cell was tiny. It was barely wider than my shoulders. All the terrible things you hear about a jail cell, that's what it was. Um, I didn't sleep a wink that night. Brian, My friend Brian got a ride home. Um, you know, The next day, they came to pick me up. And the part of this story that I haven't told until now is the really fucked up part and shows how addicted I was. They came to pick me up at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock the following morning. I had stuffed half a gram of cocaine in my sock that I kept with me 
The cop didn't find it. I had it with me in that jail cell overnight. And so when they came to pick me up and I got in the car to go home, the first thing I did was key bumps. Nice. 10 o'clock in the morning, the day after I had just gotten out of jail. Stay classy. On the ride home. Didn't even wait until we got home. I'm in my friend's car. Let's and get out of the parking lot first. Yeah. I probably was like, can I do this now? They're hearing me in the back just, Tony, what are, you, police parking yes, lot. what are you doing? And that that's the picture of an addict, you know. Um, that's That's how addicted I was. But, you know, I feel like it's a triumphant story because the cops never found the code. Yeah, man. You know what I mean? If he had found that coke, I'd be in much worse shape. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, one thing I recognize is that you were able to get help when you needed. Like, uh, it may have taken 20 years, but yeah. you eventually decided to get help. Yeah. Uh, was it tough to admit that you needed help when you're saying that your whole family just usually worked through things? And Yeah, it was. Um, but I also feel like through... Through being around stand-up and being around smart, honest, funny, progressive friends, that it kind of got me out of that old-school mentality. It helped me break free of that a little bit, where I was much more open to getting help. Because if I had thought about quitting in my 30s, I don't think I would have been open to therapy I don't think I would have been open to asking friends for help even. It wouldn't have been something that I discussed because drinking was such a part of who I was for so long, and that's what people came to expect from me. They expected me to be that dude that was going to you know, drink until he blacked out because that's what I had done for so long. And you take on that personality when you do it for that many years. So you I, are drunk. That's who I was, right? Um. By the end of my drinking, I was so ready for a change, mind, body, and soul, that I invited any help I could get, and I didn't feel ashamed about it. Um, I didn't mind telling people that I had a problem. I didn't mind telling anybody, hey, I am an alcoholic. I'm just a recovering alcoholic now. I was a practicing alcoholic. Um... I'm totally free and open to saying that because there's power in it. If if for all those years that I kept it buried and tried to hide, like I would try to hide my drinking from grandma, like I would sneak six packs into my childhood bedroom when I would stay with her. And I was thinking I was slick, but several times she would tell me like, you know, I heard those bottles last night or I found that bottle that you had stashed, like I wasn't slick. Everybody knew, but you think when you're addicted that you're fooling people. The only person you're fooling is yourself, honestly. And uh, I was ready to just pull down that facade and just any kind of any kind of illusion I was trying to put out to people. I was done with that. I was ready to say that's this is who I am, and part of that is I'm a recovering addict. Yeah. Do you feel like your mistakes mistakes helped shape you? Um, ultimately, I think that we probably learned from our mistakes, um, and whether or not, you know, it shapes your career path or things like that are undetermined, but as like, as far as who you are as a person, if you don't learn from the mistakes, something's wrong, you know, 
we don't want to repeat them. I know that I certainly don't want to repeat the hundreds of mistakes I made. So I've put that into action. You know, I, I've I've recognized the things that I've done wrong in the past. Um, most of it, you know, lying, cheating, and stealing to feed an addiction is what my problems were. But in talking with my therapist, not to be the person who's like, well, my therapist said, but she did talk about the fact, and I believe it to be true, that, you know, you're you're masking some deep pain when you drink and use the way I did. There's something going on there um, that is not just for the love of being wasted. It's not just the love of intoxication. You're trying to bury something. And so I'm working that stuff out. And uh, there were a lot of mistakes made in my life because I wasn't willing to admit that that pain was even there. Um you know, a lot of it going back to the fact that I don't have a dad and I was adopted and my mom had oh, me. Oh, you was, too? Yeah. Oh, congrats. Brothers Amen. forever, right? Brothers. Um, no, seriously. i on these handshakes. <laughs> I like them. Um, but yeah, that I'm working that stuff out now. And if I weren't able to admit the mistakes I made, I don't think I would be in a headspace to be able to even talk about that stuff. So that's learning from mistakes in a way, I think. At least it is for me. Yeah. I agree. You know, I feel like I'm a much, much healthier mental, mentally now than, than I've ever been. Um, and it only took 45 years. <laughs> so, you know, keep striving guys. You're both in your twenties. I'm guessing. Yeah. I just hit 30. Nice. Okay. 30, yeah. Okay. Well, you're getting a little bit more knowledge. Yeah. Andrew, you're working on it. I got, yeah. 28. <laughs> Do you have, I, I mean, I would probably... I don't know how much time we have left, but we've talked a little bit, and I've heard you talk a little bit. Like you've got addiction things too, correct? Uh, yeah, very similar story. Okay. Uh, I started drinking at twelve, thirteen. Yeah. Yo, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We well, had some pain. We had in to the kill. household. I was, uh, I was, I was looking up to uh, like eighties rock stars. Same. Which like. The role model in my house gave me a guitar and was like, you can be that, man. Here's some weed with that guitar. Wow. Uh, so I would smoke weed with family members all the time. And then by the time I was 15, 16, they were showing me how to cook crack. Jesus. Uh, you know. Uh, they so were making was, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. <laughs> well, no, Being in the see, enterprise business. We were the safe house away from downtown Raleigh where oh. certain uh, men who did things would come over and... Uh, it's, you know, one of my favorite Lil Wayne songs is Work on the Kitchen Table. Well, where are the bags? Because that was my kitchen table. Dang. Um, wow. But, uh, yeah, I, I never really got too hard into the other stuff. Okay. Um, but I did. I was a nightly drinker from, like, 15 to, yeah, like, eight months ago. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And the last night I did drink happened to be a night where I did a bunch of uh, other stuff, too. Yeah. And I woke up the next day. I was like, man, got out of hand again last night. Man, so many nights where it's like, I remember some things, but I don't remember most. And then people filling me in on the things I had done. And like, I was a, I was a mostly happy drunk when I was out with people. Mm -hmm. But what they didn't see is when I would get home, I would drink 10 more beers by myself in my room. Party don't stop. Yeah. Party never stopped. Until I blacked out. I've been told that people could never tell when I was drunk. 
Wow. Because I was the type of uh, drinker who I would do shots with everybody, and we would go get a table at, I don't know, Northside or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, I'm going to uh, grab another shot. I'll go, and I would dr- order two shots. Yeah. Whatever. You yeah. Know, I'd be taking shots just continuously. Yeah. And uh, people could tell I was getting buzzed or drunk. Occasionally, there'd be a night where they'd be like, oh, Andrew's messed up. He's right. blasted. Yeah. But most of the time my behavior was like very on point sure yeah Nothing i mean i held it together when i was out for yeah. sure you know most people were like oh my god that was we had so much fun last night and i was like yeah i went home and drank 10 more beers and cried myself to sleep and thought about killing myself like they didn't see that side of it and it it wasn't like that all the time but toward the end is when it was so dark that it was like that daily until i eventually just didn't go out at all yeah. I would drink at home alone every night, and that's a problem. <laughs> I don't care who you are; that is a problem, and I'm glad that I recognized it before uh, before it it got too too far down the road where I couldn't come back. You know, so what killed me the most was getting too fucked up for open mics. Holy shit! That's, really? That was my big regret because I never did anything illegal, or I never like really stole from people and yeah. lied or like i wasn't violence mm-hmm. um but the worst was fucking getting up and trying to do comedy and bombing terribly Damn. it was the most embarrassing thing and knowing it was because you were wasted right yeah, yeah. i don't remember some of the mics i've done mcneil's yeah. seen me i have That's i was crazy. there for the epic mic drop i just uh, dropped <laughs> uh andrew got done at an open mic and uh he had clearly bombed. I think he thought it went well. He holds the mic out and drops some, this this dude's equipment. Oh, He just shit. drops the mic. And I'm like, oh, you can't. You can't. <laughs> oh, a wow. Time. You have to be on like a uh, uh, level of Barack Obama to drop a mic. Because <laughs> he has dropped the mic. But he's, uh, he's obesey. Yeah, he's, I mean, you know, he's who he is, the coolest dude alive. Yeah. He can do that kind of thing. That's crazy. So, uh, did you quit cold turkey or did you get. I did, and uh, yeah. I had to go to a hospital. Okay. Because gotcha. I weigh 135 right. pounds. See, I had some cushion. I was eating one meal a day most mm-hmm. days yeah. and uh, drinking about a fifth of whiskey Jesus. a night. Wow. So, I was like totally physically. Yeah. Um, so when I quit around day four, I started to kind of like, it was like I drank a bottle of NyQuil. Wow. And, uh, I would like close my eyes and I was hearing shit. I'd close my eyes and then I'd wake up and I'd be like talking to myself. Yeah. I still to this day don't know if like maybe I was having small seizures or Could something. Could have been. Yeah. Um, so I went to the ER and, Smart. uh, spent the night there and then got out and, um, the next day, I felt amazing. Right. So day five, I was great. And then uh, ever since, it's been fine. Yeah. I mean, I am so lucky that... Because that thing about seizures scared the shit out of me. That's why I, 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 I'm terrified to take another drink. Yeah, me too. And I, it's so weird the way that we rationalize things. I kept drinking because I feared the seizures that might happen if I quit drinking. Yeah. So I was like, oh, well, if I just keep drinking, I'll never have those seizures. And you know about kidding, You know what man. I mean? Like, that's really the, the shit that I told myself. And so another year would go by and I'd be drunk the whole time. You know about kindling, right? What's that? Kindling. Uh-uh. So what? that's uh, every time you stop, 
the withdrawals get worse. Oh, God. Oh. See, that's so scary. I'm never going back. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. It's what binge drinkers who drink two bottles of Patron every weekend rapidly get to that seizure point. Yeah. And that DT point. Yeah. Because uh, every time it's like, I, I don't know what a good analogy is, but yeah, every time you stop. So, it just sounds knows? awful. If I took two shots tomorrow, then it could multiply my withdrawal by 10. Well, right? yeah, totally. And the thing for me, I don't know if you were like this, it was never about having a drink. People who can go out and have a drink, that blows my mind because I always wanted to get as wasted as possible. That was always well, that's the what's goal. fun. I mean, it's not. <laughs> It is, it is one of the most uh, fun parts or enjoyable yeah. parts. Yeah. But I, I never, like, from the time I was young, I'm talking, you know, when I first turned 21 and was like, let's go out and have a drink. And I'm like, do you want to go get wasted hey. and drink seven or eight beers? Because I'm down for that. I don't know what a drink <laughs> is. I really never did it that way. We don't do a drink here. We do drinks. Like, <laughs> well, that's kind of like the same. Uh, I don't know. I think it kind of goes into the, every aspect of our lives. Same with comedy. Yeah, I want to do four or five mics a week. Right. Yeah. Same with sex. I want to have sex every multiple times a day. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the way our brains are often wired. Is like if something feels good to you, I want to do that as I often as possible. I want to eat the whole box. Of yes. Totally. Yeah. I. Yeah. That's it. And so. I'm lucky, I think, that I was a beer drinker because it was a more methodical approach. Like, I couldn't drink seven beers at one time. So, I think that helped with me not having huge physical withdrawal symptoms. I have a friend who drank just as much as me. I was never a morning drinker. Mm -hmm. So, when my friend stopped, I was like, how did you not? Because they were a morning drinker. Yeah, I I was was like, how did you not get anything like what I got? Yeah. I was like, oh, it's beer. Yeah. I was drinking bottom shelf Evan Williams, yeah, twelve dollars a fifth. Whiskey. The green bottle, green gut. Bottle, yeah. I saw the green bottle when we were living together. Bloody, it was... brutal. So we've uh, gone over a lot of your mistakes. Uh, we have... <laughs> we just scratched the surface. Oh, we just scratched the surface. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, uh, we can do. We can. <laughs> we can keep going. Have you ever uh, done what anything you... uh, illegal? Have you ever harmed? A I've child. never no. A child. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Luckily, I knew enough to stay away from kids. Um, I knew that that wouldn't be a good combination. Um, no, I like you. I was never um, violent. I never got mad. I was a mostly happy drunk until I, you know, I would get home by myself, and then it was just sadness, just boom, just hitting me. Um, but I definitely, I stole from family and friends, um, particularly those two years when I was doing coke every day. You know, I already talked about how I stole from my dealer slash roommate. That's not that bad. No, I mean. He, it, his profit margins are high. I was a steady customer for years. Like, this dude got a lot of my money. So I felt like taking, you know, half a gram here or half a gram there really wasn't that bad. But, you know, stealing, the thing that stands out that is probably the worst mistake or the thing that I regret the most um, is lying to grandma about needing something needing money for something and spending that money on alcohol and drugs. And I did it repeatedly. Mm -hmm. I did it so many times. 
I was so addicted and couldn't think about anything else besides buying another 12 pack or buying a gram, whatever it might have been, um, that I would lie to her and say, hey, I need help paying the electric bill this month. And bless her soul, she would always be willing to give me $100 here, $50 there, whatever it might have been, and I would spend that immediately on drugs and alcohol. Well, she couldn't judge because there was Coke in her Coca-Cola when she was younger. (laughs) (laughs) And and she and Pops were pretty heavy Jim Beam drinkers, I will say that. I don't think it caused me to drink, but I certainly remember from a very early age, like, oh, that bottle is around. They had the big half gallon of it, you know? I remember seeing that bottle a lot. That's how um, my grandfather died. Yeah, Where he drank. He would drink a, a handle of Evan Williams. Jesus man! And uh, he passed out one day. He lived in a trailer out in Yuma, Arizona, wow. in the desert. And the heat got up. He was passed out. No AC. Dang. Got a heat stroke. That will do it. But yeah, that was. I mean, that's the worst thing I've ever done. But the the good thing is, you know, like I said, after I got sober, there's that thing that they did. I don't. I don't, you know, do AA, but there's one thing that I took away from it that I believe in is going back and apologizing to people that you've wronged. And I certainly did that with her and and came clean about a lot of the things that that I did um, when I was in an intoxicated state that I would never consider doing sober um, because, you know, I did love her more than anybody. And the way she always was, totally forgiving. It's amazing how people, how forgiving people will be if you just are honest with them. I gotta go back and apologize to Hillary Clinton. <laughs> What'd you do? I was an ironic Trump supporter in <laughs> 2016. You were making the joke out of it. I was. Think about all the people that voted for Trump because, because of, of you, you Andrew. I have trying to, go to do a joke. Now to we're in this just weird hellscape all because of you all because of me nah man i blame alcohol that'll make you go back to drinking i don't want to blame you for this stuff (laughs) um do you want to oh so uh we wrap things up by having uh the guests give a motivational speech oh wow um it could be a like a ted talk type uh you're talking to middle schoolers you're talking to people who may be addicted whatever you choose okay and uh give your motivational speech okay how long should i go is there any set time uh it's like a minute couple minutes uh, yeah about a minute, minute or so yeah gotcha just a quick little speech all right um my motivational speech would be to people who have maybe thought about getting into therapy but won't take the plunge I encourage you to do it, and it comes from a person who never considered it. But once I did, I noticed a change, I noticed an improvement, I noticed that I was able to be more honest with myself and others through therapy. Um, You're going to have to dig up some things that you might not like, but you know what? It's going to help. You're going to be a better person. You're going to be a more forgiving person you're going to form stronger relationships with people that you love because you're in a better headspace so go to therapy every single one of you i don't care go to therapy it's worth it you're going to be better for it and because you're going to be better for it we're all going to be better for it yeah that's what i'm that's my motivational speech yay i think i don't i think i mispronounced therapy at the end but whatever (laughs) 
So, uh, what do you what do you want to leave the people with? Uh, what do you think the overall message for this uh, podcast is, and then what shows do you have coming up? Yeah. Um, well, again, thank you for having me. This is a great idea. Um, the mistakes that we make kind of, in many ways, form who we are in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing, as long as you learn from it. Um, yeah, it shows here at the pit, Chapel Hill, Fresh Bits coming up on Saturday. Hell yeah. Uh, November 2nd. I love that show so much. Um, this will be the fourth or fifth time I've done it. Um, and then we've got the Franklin Street Comedy Festival. Yeah. Late Ooh. November. I think it's like the 24th. Yeah. That'll tw- be around when this drops, sometime around there. Perfect. Yep. Yeah. I'm. It's the first comedy festival I've ever been accepted to. I'm only a year and a half into stand-up, but I've applied to so many festivals and gotten rejected by them all, except until now. Um, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about being part of a comedy festival here. The scene here is phenomenal. I love coming back and... Um, coming down from Raleigh and doing as many shows here and at Zogs and anywhere else in Chapel Hill that'll have me. So, uh, yeah, Franklin Street Comedy Festival, November 20-something. Um, 20th through 25th. 25th. Yeah, I think that's right. A lot of good comics on a lot of those shows. We know a lot of them. So, uh, yeah, come out to those. And all the open mics in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, we're out there. We're doing it, right? Yeah. Aren't we? I always have trepidations about inviting people to open, open mics. mics. Yeah, I know. I know. I feel the same way. Like, what did I just do? Well, I don't have any shows to promote right yeah. now, okay, <laughs> McNeil? Oh, my bad, my bad, my bad. I just, you put me on the spot. I don't have any shows, Well, man. see, I come with that fire at every mic, so uh, you go do. ahead and come by. Well, a lot of people come with fires, and a lot of people... <laughs> come with two pieces of sticks don't try to rub them together don't you i swear i uh i go through stages where i'm like i want nothing more than to see the craziness that's going to happen at this open mic and then a week later i'm like i want nothing more than to avoid the craziness that's going to happen at this open mic sometimes i want to be in it and other times i want to be ten thousand miles away it really and that's part of the beauty of it you really never know what you're going to get and it's kind of great, and it's kind of scary. Um, so either way, we're going to keep doing them. I'm going to keep doing them. We'll yeah. see. So yeah, sometimes I want to ask them, like, did you think that racist joke was going to yes! work? Like, did I know. You, did you think, like... You can't talk about women that way anymore, man. What are you like, doing? What are you doing? <laughs> it is not the 90s. Like, no! Read the room. God, man. I, I don't want to portray myself as being the most, you know woke guy but for a dude in my in my 40s i feel like i'm very open-minded and i'm trying to be in every in every facet so when i see a 20 year old comic getting up there and saying something that could have been from like my grandpa's era i'm like are you doing this for shock value or do you really believe this thing you're saying right now give them the benefit of if you're less than a year into comedy you're 19 years old you don't know what the parameters are yet true True. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. I they'll learn eventually. You That's hope. what I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, if they don't, then they will be pushed out. That it takes care of itself. It yeah. releases itself most of the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not with all the rules for open mics. Just let it police itself like you said. Yeah. And then honestly, a lot of these young comedians, if someone pulled them aside and was just like, 
Let me tell you. Let me explain to you exactly what's going to not why this is not going to work. Yeah. Then then berating them or saying something snarky after they get off stage. It's like that's not going to solve. No, it doesn't help. It doesn't. They're just going to resent you and double down on what they're doing rather than you pulling them to the side. Absolutely. Trust me. I know. I'm black. I've had to be around racist people my entire life. <laughs> in comedy and, and out. In and out. And you just can't go around punching racist people in the face all the time. <laughs> that you, doesn't work. It doesn't work. You got you to gotta ease them into it. Uh, what do you want to leave the people with, uh, Andrew? Uh, follow me on Instagram, Andrew Gleason NC. Um, follow Humor in Mistakes on Instagram, humor.in.mistakes. Uh, I got a TikTok. I got a Twitter. I got a Facebook. You can find me online. Uh, do you have social media, 45-year-old guy? Yes, okay, I do. Okay. I do. At Tony Castleberry, um, T-O-N-Y-C-A-S-T-L-E-B-E-R-R-Y on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow me on I Keep It McReal <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, if you like this, please like and subscribe the podcast. Uh, yeah, and uh, well, I'm not going to announce that yet. Uh, yeah. We've got uh, some pretty sweet reviews on iTunes. Nice. Oh, sweet. Nice. I think we should. We would love to have more, everybody. Yeah. If you listen to the podcast, uh, just leave some nice words. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you want us to improve with. Five yeah. star it. Can five, you star it? You can, can star it. Right? Yeah. We're five star worthy. I think I we're totally five star agree. worthy. Now that I've been on, I'm going to leave a great review. Ooh, oh, okay, yeah. sweet. And I'm a, I'm a I'm a writer, so it's going to be awesome. Uh oh. Were you going to announce the thing that we talked about before, Lance? Uh, yeah, but I don't have all the details yet, so it's going to sound very unprofessional if I if I announce it this very second. Okay. Uh, I have the headphones on. We can still hear. <laughs> okay. I'm covering the mic. It's just, I just feel like I want to be part of the group. We're going to leave this in. <laughs> yeah, we got an announcement coming soon. We're yeah. going to be uh, working on something, uh, hopefully giving back to the community a little bit. All right. Awesome. Guys, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. We out.